welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two hours, as usual, to go against the grain, and we have a very full show We today. do indeed. Uh, we are going to start in just a moment with what is happening in Russia and Ukraine as martial law is declared in four regions that just changed hands on paper, at least. Uh, changing the hands, a little more complicated on the ground and probably will be for some time. We are going to talk to the son of an American citizen who's been arrested in Saudi Arabia for tweeting critically about the Saudi government. Outrageous. Yeah, it is pretty, pretty wild. We are going to ask why the U.S. Congress, man, this stuff flies so under the radar and I think is really important. Why the U.S. Congress is trying to give wartime powers to the Pentagon if we aren't at war. Because nobody on Capitol Hill has the guts to call for a vote on a declaration of war. Right. And they haven't had the guts since December the 8th of 1941, which is the last time they did it. And I think, you know, I think the fact that we are engaged in in conflict around the world without ever actually declaring war warps our perception of, of the rest of the world and of our own country. And so we are going to talk about we are going to talk about that. Uh, we are going to talk about why Meta is circling the drain. I don't care if that's an exaggeration. It made me laugh. We are going to ask what role China could play in what happens in Haiti. We are going to ask about a, a mainstream, well-known news producer who has gone very, very quiet after feds were authorized to search his home and reportedly found classified information on his laptop. And see just how far U.S. authorities can go in suppressing reporting before the rest of our media starts to take it uh, just the tiniest bit personally. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are going to talk about some big court decisions. We are going to talk about the verdict in the Danchenko trial. Not a big surprise there. No. No, Uh, no. We are going to talk about... Voters being targeted for arrest in Florida and this really punitive and confusing situation that's been unleashed by uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Yeah, there's a there's a whole lot to get into. Um, But we are going to start in Russia and Ukraine because there have been some uh, pretty big developments and more on the way. And so joining us to start the show off is international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks for being here again. Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on political. I'm sorry we don't have any animal stories to start with today, but we'll see if we can come up with some. Uh, so uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. I've always got animal stories. I do. I want to hear if we have time. I want to hear how the crows are doing. Um, but to start with the less important news, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared martial law in Russia's four new formerly Ukrainian territories. Uh, and also, as I understand it, enacted some wartime measures in other regions that border Ukraine. He also announced the creation of a new state council to coordinate actions between existing state agencies that are managing uh, what Russia still is calling its special operation in Ukraine. And so uh, I wonder if you can tell us what all of this means. Yeah. So, I mean, these measures are, 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 are not a surprise. OK, um, for instance, the Kiev regime has had martial law in Ukraine since February. I mean, uh, so um, it's uh, expected in a conflict zone and all of the new regions of Ukraine uh, that uh, were incorporated into Russia following the referendums are all in war zones. Um, And certainly there is a pressing, very large 
Kiev regime offensive uh, at the moment uh, headed towards Kherson city. Um, and I think that uh, in terms of security, uh, it was decided that uh, increased powers uh, for uh, police, law enforcement, uh, and for the military uh, to act freely within the regions is necessary. There have been a number of uh, sabotage attacks by uh, Kiev regime covert ops behind the lines, as well as a very significant number of political assassinations. East Ukrainian officials and their families um, who were uh, cooperating with Russians or uh, got Russian passports uh, or the like, and you know, as- essentially declared themselves to no longer be Ukrainian, um, and um, is uh, has you know definitely uh, increased uh, powers uh, to be able to fight this or something that is uh, to be desired. What about what is happening in Kherson? Uh, There have been reports that civilians and some officials will be evacuated for for days now, that they're going to be evacuated, that they are being evacuated. And I know that the general there who's in charge of the conflict has even said, yeah, this is a very difficult situation. Uh, This morning, the reports were that people are actually leaving the region. Uh, I, I wonder if you can tell us what exactly is happening there and why. Okay, so the Kiev regime has gathered a force of some 60,000 military uh, that they are pressing uh, on Kherson with for the last four days. This has been limited to uh, recon uh, in force uh, and probing attacks uh, that have all been resoundingly uh, smacked down by Russian fires, artillery, rocket systems and aviation. Oh, we're definitely. Mark has been going in and out in short yeah. bursts, but that was a longer one. Do we still have you there, Mark? Oh, I guess we're calling him back. I mean, yeah, I'm curious about this. Uh, I'm also curious, and I'll ask Mark about this when we get him back on the line. Um, but Ukraine is sort of saying this is a fake out. And, uh, what it seems like Russia has been saying, hey, this could be dangerous. We are not going to retreat, but we don't want civilians in harm's way is how they are presenting, you know, this this situation. Uh, Ukraine is saying this is a fake out. We don't we don't shell cities. Right. Uh, which also I think is, you know, probably inaccurate. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering what if you know there's going to be a conflict in a certain area, why either side wouldn't want civilians to evacuate no matter what. You right. know what I mean? Is, is Ukraine sure. worried these citizens are going to disappear and never return? Or, yeah, that's a... It's it's, frequently what happens. Is it? It is. Like, for example, in northern Cyprus, uh, those those Greek Cypriots that lived in the north of the country, um, many fled south. Many thousands fled south. Um, This was in August of 1974, and they've never been able to go back. Hmm. Never. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. It just seems like a tough call to also say, sure, we're going to fight here, but we're going to fight around you, so don't worry about it. Right. I don't know. I'll see if I'll see if we get Mark back. The other thing um, that I hope we get a chance to ask him about. So I noticed these comments made to CNN by this guy named Dan Price yes. or Dan Rice. Who, this is important. He's a he's a U.S. combat veteran. He's an author. Uh, he's he's written for a bunch of outlets. The Wall Street Journal jumps to mind. You know, he's written for a bunch of the sort of mainstream mm-hmm. media. Uh, and he is also he is a. He runs a leadership development consultancy firm. 
That Which says, means what exactly? Well, I guess he says he brings West Point philosophy and army stuff to business or filters it through. Basically, they, they provide customized leadership training to leaders in corporations, government agencies, educational institutions, and nonprofit organizations from around the world. Okay, it's like a sort of soft consultancy ecosystem networking. Grift is maybe too strong a word for it. Maybe some of these programs, development programs, have some value. But that's who it's for. Mm-hmm. Teachers, nonprofit organization heads, you know, leaders in corporations, government agencies. He is also an advisor to the commander of Ukraine's army. See, now that's the part that I don't understand. It, I don't either. He has fought in wars, right? He describes himself as a combat veteran. He's not a general. No, no, no. Or like no. a tactician or anything no. that I can see. No, he's not like huddled over a map, moving little army men and, and tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. So I don't understand why he is advising the ha- unless he's deciding. And this is what boggles my mind. But maybe because I don't know how you fight a war. Uh, maybe it is normal for like the the chief of the army to look at his staff and say, what I'm going to do in the middle of an actual conflict that we are fighting, right, with a superpower, uh, you know, one hand tied behind its back or not, uh, what I want to do is send a bunch of you guys to the United States for a six-week leadership training program. Like, presumably, if you... That's one, what your military's for, right? Yeah. It's just a big leadership right. training program sure. uh, or, or a followship training program. Uh, yeah, I don't get it. And it is... It, part of the the weirdness of this of this whole conflict, Mark. I have so much to ask you. We're out of time. Well, we're not out of time. Let me let me squeeze in. Uh, Kherson. What what's happening in Kherson? And uh, why is Ukraine basically saying uh, any evacuation is a fake and they don't shell cities and people should stay where they are? Okay. Well, the last this last ridiculous the Kiev regime has been shelling Ukrainian cities for the last eight years. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. so of Just, course they they are shelling in. Uh, they have no problems, certainly shelling uh, cities where they, they feel there are collaborators, uh, which and they have a very expansive uh, definition of that. Um, anyway, one of the big fears uh, of the offensive, as General Surovikin has noted, is that the Kiev regime uh, may intend to uh, uh, to destroy, to uh, artillery shell the Kohovka uh, Reservoir Dam, which would flood uh, basically the entire uh, combat theater, um, would raise the level of the Niper in the area significantly, uh, would flood parts of Kherson City, probably causing large numbers of civilian deaths uh, in the process. But it would also inhibit the ability of civilians to evacuate and Russia to resupply its forces, relying largely uh, on pontoon bridges and ferries uh, because of Kiev regime attacks, uh, continuing attacks with artillery on the main bridges. Uh, so it's it's best to get the civilians out of the immediate combat zone. Um, uh, that's the responsible thing to do under the rules of war, something that the Kiev regime has not done. Uh, as Amnesty International noted, and instead kept civilians uh, in urban areas as effective human shields. Russia is not doing that. They're attempting to get as many people out as they can, but it is already being complicated by Kiev regime shelling of uh, uh, the Kherson and the area around it. I don't know, Mark, if you heard, I mean, you probably know who Dan Rice is. 
Uh, he's uh, one of the advisors to the commander of Ukraine's army. But I cannot figure out why, <laughs> looking at yeah. his bio. Uh, it sounds like you have the leader of a sort of leadership consultancy firm, uh, like networking hub, giving advice to the head of, uh, you know, to the leader of an army that is engaged in active conflict. It, I feel like I feel like the fact that he is an advisor right now maybe says something about this conflict. I can't put my finger on it, but it's just uh, this is he's not a tactician. Why is he talking directly to the head of Ukraine's army? Well, one of the other advisors to Zaluzny is uh, the um, head, the head of the right sector, the neo-Nazi. So, I mean, mm. he's he's I guess he's got good company. As far as I can tell, I've never heard of this guy. He's before he's some kind of grifter. Everything he says is nonsense. Uh, Russia is not even talking. Uh, the, the, the returning to the 2014 borders mm -hmm. is a Kiev regime fantasy, right? That's what they their their wet dreams of of how this conflict would end. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, what the Russian government is talking is regime change in Kiev. And when asked uh, by the press, um, uh, uh, Putin uh, refused to affirm whether there would even be a Ukrainian state left at the end of this conflict. So completely let me ask you, uh, yeah, because, of course, this is why Dan Rice came to my mind, because he was saying to CNN that Russia actually wants to get to the Russia wants to get to the negotiating table to go back to these 2014 lines. But let me ask you about, you know, the questioning whether there will be a state left and regime change in Kiev, because this is not what Russia was stating as its objectives. That's these weren't the stated objectives at the start of this operation. And so I wonder if you think uh, the objectives have changed. Or uh, yeah, it, it, it's very clear about that. He said that these were not the objectives. We had no intention of occupying large amounts of Kiev regime territory or um, holding these referendums. This was not the plan. The plan was, um, you know, the idea of a limited special military operation to force uh, political concessions really in large in line with the Minsk accords that they had already agreed to with, with from Kiev um but um the uh, refusal of Kiev uh to to engage in uh any type of um uh you know negotiation process and uh the west obviously pushing to that and the huge amount of uh western arms intelligence funding flooding uh the country you know the declarations that russia must be defeated on the battlefield uh the treatment by the kiev regime of uh civilians uh you know uh as collaborators uh with with extrajudicial um well, executions, uh, you know, being shot in the back of the head going on regularly. All of this has forced Russia to the fact that it has to take territory and hold territory um, uh, in order to to bring this to some type of conclusion, which, well, uh, I, I think I said it at the time uh, in it back in February, but this really only ends in regime change in, in Kiev. The, the, there's no uh, way that this regime uh, hanging in power will not be a threat both to Russia's national security and to its own citizens, uh, particularly in the East, who have never accepted its seizing power in 2014.
Let me ask you one more question, uh, Mark. I'm going to spring this on you, but uh, I suspect you you would have seen the reports yesterday that Germany has sacked its head of cybersecurity. Uh, this guy has been in his job since 2016, uh, and the headlines say, okay, for, for ties to Russia, for being close to Russia, what I can see is the reason for it is that he was found to have kept in touch with a lobbying group that he had founded 10 years ago that included among its members a Russian cybersecurity company that was a subsidiary of a company that was founded by a former member of the KGB. And I just think like that is pretty tenuous. It sounds like to me, I don't, you know, whatever, Germany can do whatever it wants to do. But if you apply that standard to uh, figures coming out of U.S. intelligence, uh, boy, there'd be a lot of, I feel like a lot of people will be out of jobs. Um, Michelle, do you have any Russian friends? <laughs> do you want, why are you trying to get me to incriminate myself? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, obviously, you're Putin's agent. I mean, that that's the level that 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 we are at now. And uh, any contact with Russians at all is seen to be uh, a blasphemy against, you know, the the full throated support uh, of the regime in Kiev. Uh, and in, in fact, I mean, all avenues for diplomacy have been effectively shut down at this point. Russia is even talking about that it doesn't even need diplomats in Europe anymore. It's pointless. Oh, and it's talking about drastically stepping down its diplomatic presence because their lives are really just in threat at this point due to abuse and death threats uh, and the harassment they're getting from European governments. So, uh, yeah, the, the, there, there's no rainbow uh, anywhere in sight uh, for the end of this conflict. That's so sad. Oh, well, Mark, how are your birds before we let you go? Uh, they're, they're pretty good. Uh, the little one is uh, the one that can't fly is on the floor. Um, actually uh, pulling apart my pants right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll let you get back to that very pressing concern. Uh, that was international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks for talking to us as always. John. Thanks for having we're going to take a quick break here. We don't have to if you want to go straight into our next conversation. I'd actually like to go straight in. If, Please, if we could do that, if we mm-hmm. have our guest on the line, we I'd do. like to introduce him. Mm-hmm. Saad Ibrahim Almadi is a 72-year-old American citizen and retired project manager living in Florida. Last November, while visiting family in Saudi Arabia, he was unexpectedly arrested and charged with endangering the kingdom's security. How did he do that? The American citizen had written 14 tweets over the course of the previous seven years in which he criticized corruption in Saudi Arabia and urged reform. He's not an activist. He's not an agitator. He's simply an American citizen expressing his opinion. Saad al-Mahdi was found guilty in a kangaroo court in Saudi Arabia and sentenced to 16 years in prison, followed by a 16-year travel ban. He would be 104 years old when he's finally allowed to return home to the United States. Almaty has been tortured repeatedly since his imprisonment. The State Department says that it has complained to the Saudi government, but Saudi Arabia has a long history of incarcerating and torturing people, expressing their freedom of speech. We are joined by his son, Ibrahim Almaty. He's the son of Saad Ibrahim Almadi, the American who is currently incarcerated in Saudi Arabia. Mr. Almadi, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. It took a lot of convincing to go out public. You know, and that's really one one of my first questions. Um, there are so many people, including people in the State Department, who say, oh, you know, it's better to just uh, stay quiet. We'll try to work this uh, privately through diplomatic channels. And then nothing seems to happen. And it's then so for the family, the only alternative is to go public. Is that what happened to your family? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, with, when, when, when it comes to my family, they are still supporting to work in silence. Uh, I have no communication now with my family. Everyone is terrified because I'm public. But since wow. I lose my father, nothing will be worth keeping. I'm willing to lose my businesses and the rest of the family. So I'm losing my father in this unjust and unfair way. It, it, this is a terrible, terrible story. We've, we've seen the reporting in the Washington Post and at ABC News. Tell us how this whole ordeal began. So my father uh, was trapped during the COVID time in Saudi Arabia to come to the States, but they wouldn't let him. The United States are welcoming their citizens in the COVID time, but Saudis refused to let my father leave. Even though I tried to escalate his case um, uh, in the United States to bring my father during the COVID time, they refused. So in May, the, the travel ban lifts for all the Saudis. So my father uh, came to the States. When he um, came to the States, uh, to his home in Florida, and started tweeting uh, uh, a bit about the taxation laws, uh, which a uh, previously uh, introduced to the Saudis, um, I think the Saudis start paying attention more to my father. Uh, Who is this guy who's a proud uh, American citizen, live in the States, and uh, writing about our taxation laws? Um, myself, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the taxation laws, uh, of the tweets that my father wrote about the taxation laws, because the taxation law in Saudi Arabia, it's 15% of anything you purchase. Mm-hmm. We live in Florida, we pay zero tax in food. Uh, right. uh, so we are buying some junk food. So my father has some uh, 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 opinion, and he has the right to have an opinion, because he's a human being, not an animal. He's practicing his First Amendment, freedom of speech. Exactly right. And then they arrested him. You know, I have a friend, a a dual U.S.-Saudi national, whose brother was sentenced to 20 years in prison for marching in a peaceful pro-democracy demonstration in Jeddah. Um, this is a very prominent family. Uh, his, his father uh, was a senior official at the World Bank. The family decided to try to handle things quietly. They went to the crown prince's diwan and they asked the crown prince to intervene. They met with the minister of justice. They met with the governor of Jeddah. Nothing came of these efforts. Nothing. 20 years at hard labor was the, uh, was the, the punishment. Your family was quiet for a while, but you finally went to the State Department for help. Has the State Department been helpful? So, so, so the, the State Department, they didn't know about the story for only a month, from November 21st till December 20, uh, 20th, uh, when I contacted our embassy in Riyadh. It was 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 a.m. Riyadh time. And when I contacted, the operator told me you have to, to call back in the morning. Uh, and so I did. I have no sleep that night. Sure. The same morning, I contacted the State Department. So the State Department, they are aware of the situation since December. And I followed their guidance to work in silence. And after doing that, uh, my father got 16 years in prison, 16 years travel ban, which is 
uh, at death and 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 the present. Yeah, it is. They have no no intentions of placing long detention on him. My goodness, the Saudis have a notoriously terrible human rights record. In March of this year, they beheaded 81 people on the same day, many of them for nonviolent crimes. In one case, they even crucified a 17-year-old boy, a Shia Muslim boy, for participating in a pro-democracy demonstration in the eastern province. The Washington Post reported that you and your family were reluctant, as we said, to get in touch with the State Department initially because you knew that the Saudis torture prisoners who get in touch with their governments. Now, every prisoner in the world has the right to ask his government to intervene. That's what consular sections are for. So after the State Department became involved, your father was indeed tortured. What is his treatment like in prison now? What kind of conditions do the Saudis have him in? Right now, our embassy in Riyadh have no information since August 10. I'm not sure... They killed him now or no, to be honest. My God. It's, it's that dark. So I have no information. I'm just like you, sir. I'm seeking for an answer from the department. I was, uh, I was a consular officer in Bahrain for two years. Well, I, I, I filled in as a consular officer. I was an economic officer in Bahrain. One of my duties was to go to uh, the prison in Bahrain and, um, and visit Americans who were there. Now, in Bahrain, which is attached to Saudi Arabia by a a 20-mile-long bridge, but is a, it's a completely different world in Bahrain. Right. What they tried to do in Bahrain with Americans was, number one, get them out as fast as possible. They would beg us, please, just take them to the airport, put them on a plane, and get them out of our country. Now, the small handful of Americans who were actually incarcerated over the long term, it was all for drugs. They were kept in the nicest cells in the prison. They were given the best food. They weren't subject to any violence at all. That is not at all the case in Saudi Arabia. The, 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 the conditions are deplorable, something that you would expect to see in some of the poorest countries in the world. Um, there is a, the use of official violence against prisoners. There's no access to medical care. Your father is 67 years old. Is that correct? 62 years old. 62 years old. 70, 70, 72, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, 72 years old. Does he have access to medications or to a doctor? What's his physical condition like? My father, he has a scheduled uh, uh, back surgery in Mayo Clinic in Florida. And the embassy in Riyadh are not giving him the medical attention he needs. The Department of State are aware of that. Um, um, I, I just want to touch on what you said earlier. They, they, they kept my father in a nice cell before the visit of the, of the consulate right. in Saudi Arabia. They kept him for a month. But after the, the, the consulate left, uh, after the visit finished, they took my father and threw him with terrorists and tortured him to pray. Why do you torture him to pray? Unbelievable. So that's what he was facing. And until now, uh, my father uh, has no communication with me. I haven't called him. I don't know about his situation. I'm not sure if the Department of State are lying to me or no, because they have lied. They told him uh, I didn't tell them about the court date. So I'm not sure, actually, if they are telling the truth or no. I'm seeking for answers. I want to call my father. 
I want my father back home in Florida. And, and your father, I'm assuming, well, you said you hadn't spoken to him in, in months. I'm assuming he doesn't have access to to a, a telephone. He's not allowed to write letters or anything like that. He he gave some uh, letters to the to the to our embassy ah. to deliver it to me, but they didn't uh, do so. Uh, also, they didn't tell they didn't give him the messages that I sent. So they are uh, they are one of the reasons we are not communicating with with each other. The other thing, my father, the last time I contacted him, he was in Frankfurt Airport going uh, to Riyadh. It was the same day he was held. Uh, but no phone contact since November 21st, almost a year. Almost a year. Father for tweets. President Biden rather famously has a poor relationship with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. And Democrats on Capitol Hill are calling for some sort of sanctions against the Saudi government because of uh, oil production and other reasons. The U.S. supplies Saudi Arabia with vast amounts of weapons and weapons systems. Yet President Biden said last week that the U.S. would conduct a top-to-bottom review of relations with Saudi Arabia. First, is this a good thing or a bad thing for your father? And second, have you had any contact or has your family had any contact with the White House um, on your father's case? Absolutely. Thank you for your question. It's a lovely, good question. So, so the first thing, it's absolutely a good thing. I mean, th- that's, why, that's why I'm going public right now. I think the White House and the Department of State will support a senior American citizen who is held for tweets in these times. I mean, my friend, it's quite dark that uh, that uh, the human rights concerns won't be up unless OPEC uh, decrease their uh, their production. But this is the situation we're living in right now. Uh, regarding your second question, if, if we have in contact with the White House, I have been in a contact with the White House. I wanted to talk to Stephanie Hallett plenty of times. The operator of the White House had told me, why do you want to talk to someone who don't want to talk to you? I would expect this kind of answers if I'm talking to my ex-girlfriend, mom. Not if I'm talking to White House operator. God, what about on Capitol Hill? This seems to be the kind of case that that the Human Rights Caucus on Capitol Hill would want to to take up. There are so many members of Congress, especially right now on the Democratic side, who um, are angry with Saudi Arabia. Uh, are, are you getting any support on Capitol Hill? Not that I know of. Mm. Uh, not that I know of. And I have messaged plenty of senators and I have contacted uh, Marco Rubio. I yes. have worked with his office closely. He told me, we have nothing to say to you. Just stay in touch with the Department of State. I was calling the embassy in Riyadh. They told me we are bothered of your calls. You have a point of contact in the Department of State. And here we are. I'm public and my father's still in prison. Where can people learn more about your father's case and how can they get involved in supporting him? Send messages to the Department of State, White House. I hope they pay attention to my father. I don't want my father to die in prison like Dr. Al-Hamid, a guy who wanted a democracy in Saudi Arabia and they just killed him. Sure. They tend to do that uh, with some frequency. Well, Ibrahim Al-Mahdi, thank you for joining us. Mr. Al-Mahdi is the son of Saad Ibrahim Al-Mahdi, the American who is currently incarcerated in Saudi Arabia. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We were talking about uh, loud and clear earlier today, and it's still in my brain. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned.
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're about to get into the troubles of meta. Mm-hmm. It's They've got legs in the metaverse now and still can't get people yeah, to— I, I keep reading these reviews in the, in the New York Times. That was the first one I saw. And now the Washington Post saying this new $1,500 meta— uh, realistic, you know, where you put the mask on your eyes and what do they call that? A VR headset? A VR headset, thank you. It's worth $1,500. It takes you to a new plane. Uh, come on, man. Yeah. $1,500? I actually bought the $300 one and it was fun. But $1,500? What can this new one do that the old one doesn't? The old one, The old one that came out a year ago. Yeah, yeah, I have. Absolutely no idea. I don't understand what the metaverse is supposed to be for other than like playing video games or whatever. Like, I don't know. Is it is it really just like the evolution of a chat room or a or a chat like you can chat in text? But what if you could look at somebody's face? I don't know. Listen, I have some like pop culture stories that I want to talk about, but I know we have our guest on the line so we can get into uh, the the woes of meta. We're going to talk about how awesome and groundbreaking it is that in your your metaverse self can now have legs no weird floating torsos anymore <laughs> it's leg time baby uh so with that said why is this awesome company with its awesome new virtual interaction platform and its awesome new VR headsets, why is it losing money hand over fist such that Zuckerberg reportedly just last month was saying they might have to lay people off and and restructure? Incredible. Joining us to answer this unanswerable question is privacy expert and technologist Chris Garafa, who also co-hosts the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, so happy to be on to talk about this. Thanks for having me. I'm so sorry we're not doing this in the metaverse. John and I don't have metaverse uh, avatars yet, no. unfortunately. No. So we'll have to continue just looking good in the real world instead of looking weird in the metaverse. Um, so, yeah, obviously, I think it's great fun to talk about how terrible the metaverse looks and how funny these reports are of meta officials having to berate their staff into actually using it. Uh, but... This is actually a big company with a lot of money in a significant industry, and it is down uh, 60%. Shares are down 60% since a year ago, and so I feel like it is probably useful to understand why. Um, Meta, which used to be Facebook, hit a new low for the year earlier this month, dropping uh, shares dropping in value by 60%. Its earnings per share are down by 11%. That is just a different wonky indicator. And just last month, CEO Mark Zuckerberg reportedly announced a hiring freeze and warned of restructuring and cost-cutting measures that might include layoffs. Uh, I do not know why people aren't opening their wallets. Um, What do you think is going on, Chris? Because Facebook also had a big whistleblower scandal last year. Uh, Instagram has been implicated in in eroding the emotional well-being of users in all kinds of ways. The metaverse looks like garbage. Is that enough to tank meta or is something else going on? Well, I actually want to go back to, to what you said at the beginning, uh, you know, that you haven't done the metaverse thing. And you know what? Neither have I. Right. But there's a really fantastic article by Kashmir Hill from about a week and a half ago in the New York Times. And I would just recommend that people go read it called This is Life in the Metaverse. She spent days and nights 
actually in the metaverse, um, you know, and really writes a really good story about it. I I really recommend people uh, read it at least just, you know, to, you know, respect her for suffering like that for the rest of us. All right. Um, you know, I don't have one of these uh, these headset devices. I think most people don't. Facebook has nearly 3 billion daily active users across all of its platforms. So we're talking WhatsApp, the traditional Facebook, Instagram, and so on. Uh, the metaverse has maybe 200,000 daily active users. And yes, you can say, well, it's early on. Right. It's, uh, you know, it hasn't been around for that long, but they're putting all of this focus and attention into getting the metaverse, you know, up and running. Um, there was actually a Facebook event. I think it was at their uh, developer conference recently where they uh, let people you know, kind of play with the, the software and the hardware. And then they handed out a questionnaire afterwards and said, you know, what was your experience in the metaverse? And like the two options were basically I liked it or I loved it. <laughs> there was no, you know, it could be better. There was right. no anything else, right? So that really says a lot about, because, you know, all parts of those kinds of conferences are scripted, like, to the second. Every word is chosen very particularly. So really, you know, having that shows that Zuckerberg has this really singular focus on the metaverse. I think part of what this has to do, really, and, and I, don't, I don't like putting it on a single person, but in this situation— You know, it's just this megalomaniacal, egotistical dream that Zuckerberg has, and now he's got so much money, you know, it's really the evil villain that he's able to start doing it. I mean, I would compare it to Elon Musk and SpaceX and his Project X and all of the other things that he's doing, right? They've accumulated all of this vast wealth and just kind of want to play with it at the, you know, without any kind of consideration of what it means for the rest of us. So... Facebook did have that whistleblower scandal you mentioned. We know that Instagram, for example, is extremely bad for the mental health of teenage girls in particular. Uh, And frankly, it's not good for anyone else's mental health either. Even if you're an influencer, there are really like there's a lot of pressure to continue to create and produce. If you're seeing the content, you want to make your life like that and you can never catch up. You can never attain the dream that you're seeing um, on the screen. Facebook, the platform itself, has so many issues with racism, with misogyny, with, uh, you know, spam, straight up just like, you Mm -hmm. know, buy Ray-Ban sunglass spam. Uh, And I, I think Zuckerberg, in a sense, is kind of just over it. If we go back a few years, right, we're approaching a midterm election now. I can't believe it's, you know, been that long. But if we go back a few years, it was all about what Facebook's, you know, so-called responsibility was in terms of protecting elections. And I really do think that the company is trying to get away from that period where it had to be on the PR offensive and saying, you know, we didn't do anything. Trump wasn't our fault. This and that. Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, they really want to move away from that. I think it seems like, based on the moves that they've been making, they are grasping at straws, frankly, in oh. order to figure out how to how to go to their next thing. And again, combined with the the focus of Zuckerberg on the Metaverse project, you know, he's all in on it. That's really what we're seeing here. It kind of feels like, and maybe this is me. This is my perhaps like my idiosyncratic social media use, but. 
it kind of feels like they forgot that now people are using their apps on their phone. And the beauty of them and the, t- the you know, terror of them is that we're all just multitasking all the time. Yes. So you're dipping in and out of social media. You're taking a glance to sort of like take a break from whatever you're engaged in to go engage in something else. It's not, I don't know. I feel like it might have been a misjudgment to think that what people want is a totally immersive experience. It seems like what people want is actually an incredibly fragmented experience, a sort of a la carte interaction that you can walk in and out of. And that, of course, has its own, you know, I I don't think it's probably good for any of our brains to be living so much of our life that way. Uh, But yeah, it feels like feels like that's maybe the the a big miscalculation of the metaverse was this idea that the way people want to use what is, you know, at heart a social media platform that just has has larger aspirations is to be fully immersed in it. Well, I, I would actually argue that it's social media and digital media in general that has trained us to want to just go from one thing to another. Yeah. You know, think think about, you know, before social media, before, you know, all, you know, Netflix and being able to watch 500 channels and any show you wanted, you know, you would sit and you'd watch a TV show for half an hour and maybe take a break at the commercials, if anyone remembers commercials. Right. Um, you know, and, and you would, that's what you'd be doing. Now, I... You, even if you're sitting and watching a Netflix show you really want to watch right now, how many times are you picking up your phone and checking your notifications and looking at email and what's this friend doing yeah. while you're doing a thing that you want to do? So really, social media has trained us to get that uh, that endorphin rush to say that, you know what, yeah, y- y- you need to see what's going on. You don't want to miss out, you know, the fear of missing out, whether it's on an actual event that's happening or some gossip or news or the latest meme or just, you know, a cute cat, which we all love. That's really, I think, what's happened here. And I think, you know, if you look at even watch a kid play a game like Minecraft or Roblox or something at that, you know, these days, and even then they've got a Discord chat going on. They're watching tutorials on YouTube. Maybe they're streaming it themselves and interacting with their audience. Uh, you know, all of this multitasking is really not it's not even multitasking, right? You, it's very hard to truly multitask, um, but it's really not it's not really not healthy for us. Uh but in terms of going into the metaverse, I mean, if you if, definitely check out Cashmere Hill's article, because oh, I'm there's scrolling a lot. through it now as you're talking. To you. It's it's a lot wild. to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's extremely, you know, from what she has written and what other people, you know, the reflections other people have given, it's extremely distracting. And people can just show up in front of you at any time, uh, which, you know, is I mean, that's a <laughs> just a personal you know, concern. Um in terms of like anyone can just walk up to you and speak to you and you have to turn on additional protections to to prevent that from happening. So I think the metaverse, while it is immersive in the sense that you are putting on a headset, is actually going to be just as fragmented as the social media that we have now. Interesting. You just have to go all the way into it. So can I ask you, I mean, I want to ask what is the sort of potentially tech and economic significance of of you know, if, if Meta really starts to shrink, right, if they do have to lay people off, if it does really not succeed. But first, I want to ask, why does it look so bad? Uh, why does it look so much worse than most video games? Why did it take them a year to to make legs? Why does it why does it look the way it does, Chris? Couldn't it be better? (laughs) I just love this leg thing. Hey, we've got legs. I mean, really, that's what Zuckerberg was promoting. We've got legs in the metaverse now. I I, I just I love that because it shows 
how immature this technology is. Why is it taking so long? That's such a good question. You know, Meta has some really bright people working on this stuff. And I think part of it is the fact that they are trying to do it with today's technology and today's, uh, you know, the headsets and the, you know, tracking your, your heart rate and the motion of a body. But if we look at, you know, CGI and movies, if we look at, uh, you know, how servers are set up in like maybe a lot of video games in terms of having multiple people in one room, a lot of this technology has already been applied. So I, I don't know what internally at Facebook is making it look so bad, but it is comical to see what it, you know, what Zuckerberg is so excited about. And that's not to say that they're not going to make some really advanced, you know, uh, really advanced moves in this. I think the the stuff that they have shown about how they really want to be able to map out everything and track everything you're, you know, every little movement you you do, every muscle, you know, twitch. I think is actually very impressive from a strictly technical, you know. Uh, standpoint, but they're just not there yet. And I think if they had waited a few years, it might look better and it could have come with legs to start with. I feel like this is like when you put a house on the market for way too much money and no one bids and you have to drop the price and everyone goes, I don't know, something seems wrong with that one. Yeah, I think they're going to have a hard time. If you, you know, drop something Make your staff act like it's really exciting and they're really excited about it. Try to convince us that it's cool when we have eyeballs and we can look at it and go, that looks like garbage. It looks like a joke. What are you talking about? Uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to get people to catch up in five years and and realize that it's cool. Whereas, again, if you had waited and you had presented this, uh, you know, this this huge world that looked really good, that was really interesting. That ha- Sure, I might have. I might have even like if somebody, you know. I would not buy a headset. I will tell you that right now. But maybe someone could get me to pay $20 in a mall to do it or something. Or I would put on someone else's for mm-hmm. out of curiosity. Sure, sure, out of curiosity. Sure. But no, I don't even, you know, I mean, just just to like hate experience it is what I would do now. Well, and I don't me, know if they can recover. Do you mind if I ask real quickly a, a, a question of Chris? Chris, uh, you know, this, this – um, Virtual reality headset that they were selling last year and the year before. Very cool. My brother-in-law got one. I liked it enough that I bought one too. And the reason I bought it, it was because it was in the midst of the of the pandemic. And you put this thing on and you say, you know, you click the little handset and you say, take me to the beach in Santorini, Greece. And then boom, you're standing on the beach and it looks, you look around 360 and it looks like you are on the beach in Santorini. It was amazing when you couldn't get out of the house and the weather was bad and everybody in America is depressed because of COVID. Okay. $300. What do you, what do you get for $1,500? Why do people need that thing? It's more sensors, more advanced uh, eye movement tracking and things like that. That's really what it is, as well as, you know, just the sheer market force of saying, right. hey, this is this is popular, so therefore it's more right. expensive. And yeah. it makes it seem a little more elite if you're saying, I've got a $1,500 headset as well, which makes people want to be involved with it, you know, mm-hmm. in a certain way, right? You could have the best phone in the world for $100, but if it doesn't have that Apple logo on the back of it, people right. are going to be like, well, it's only 100 It's not, you know, a $900 iPhone. Then how good can it really be? And I think there, there's, you know, a lot of advertising and marketing is really based, uh, you know, with that mindset in terms of product placement. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I want to talk about, though, just in terms of, John, what you said about, you know, during COVID, right, you put on a headset and you're on a beach all of a sudden and yeah. it's gorgeous and you don't have to deal with your life because you're locked in your apartment and you're locked in your home. Every, you can't go outside. Everyone's sick and everything's scary. But that's where the idea of the metaverse actually came from. You know, the first huh. time the phrase was used was in a, a novel by Neil Stevenson in 1992 called Snow Crash, which is, you know, really a dystopian, you know, story. And in that story, the protagonist lives in basically a storage unit and is a pizza delivery person. But in the metaverse, he has the giant house and he owns real estate and he connects to his headset and his computer and plugs in at the end of his day so he can forget everything that's going on in the real world. Wow. And that when Zuckerberg announced this full-on focus on the metaverse. It really struck me, you know, this is the story, this is the warning that Neil Stevenson gave us in Snow Crash that, you know, really, I mean, look at the 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 world right now. We have economic crisis, we have climate crisis, we have war, all of these things, and the focus of this, you know, multi-billionaire uh, is to bring us out of the real world instead of addressing the crises that we're in. I want to talk about the, you know, what you think might be the implications if, if, I mean, I don't know. Facebook is a big, wealthy company. Meta is a big, wealthy company. Um, but it also, it owns Instagram. It owns other social media platforms. These platforms, as as we've been discussing, have really shaped our society for the past 10 or 15 years, you know, like it or not. And I wonder what the repercussions could be if Meta does lose a ton of money and has to go through major transformations or, you know, who knows, goes bankrupt, disappears like Friendster did. Um, what happens to these platforms? You know, it, are there ripples if if Meta shrinks and disappears or, you know, does any company, no matter how big it gets, you're all expendable, the, the sort of in industry won't notice when you're gone? Well, I, I just want to say first, Michelle, I think we're dating ourselves a little bit with the Friendster reference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's going back. Kids, but, there used uh, to be this thing that was basically <laughs> Facebook. So right now, we're actually seeing a lot of tech companies uh, not necessarily doing layoffs, uh, as Zuckerberg has spoken about, but definitely of hiring freezes. They're saying, we're not hiring people. And in particular, they're not hiring low-level employees, junior engineers or even mid-level engineers. They're really focusing on senior talent. And that's really across all of the major, you know, the Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, um, all of these companies. So it's something that we're not just seeing from Facebook. It's a, you know, industry-wide correction in a sense. Um, but what happens if Facebook does go away one day? I mean, people are going to be very, very upset. We have gotten so used to opening up uh, Instagram and scrolling through, uh, but somebody else will step in, right? The, uh, you know, the, the market will seize on that. The market will say, okay, now it's going to be TikTok. It's going to be whoever, uh, and, you know, some company that doesn't even exist today, and they're going to step in. Similar to, you know, how MySpace just kind of disappeared, right? Yeah. And then rebuilt itself as a, a music site, you know, today. But I think it also gets to the point of what is the, the reality of like where all of our data is. If Facebook goes away, your friends list is gone, your messages are gone, the photos you've upla uploaded, all gone. Um, and when we get back to that, that insistence that we, we all have been trained to have to go get that little hit of, you know, of dopamine and go check the notifications and see what people have been posting, I think that actually could cause serious, uh, you know, 
social issues. And I, it's, it seems funny, but if Facebook were to disappear, it could actually cause serious social issues as people have to adapt, really, to not having it. Because let me ask before we let you go. I mean, this is just really that the the metaverse is disappointing. You don't see any indications that people are souring on social media in general, or do you? Because you do hear lots of stories also about how, like, oh, Gen Z, they're Luddites, you know, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. They're not dating. They don't have social media platforms. Uh, Is that the case, or um, are they as popular as ever? They're on social media. They're on places like uh, like TikTok and Snapchat still. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is when these companies provide a platform that we like and then they change because they have to grow. It's the law of capitalism. They have to grow. For example, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about Instagram. Instagram now wants to let you or they're looking at letting you add a profile song to your page, just like MySpace used to do. Uh-huh. If you remember, you know, talking about dating ourselves, right? Uh-huh. You would go on and you'd have your song that played when somebody went to your page. Instagram is considering something like that. I mean, I think they have no guidance. They have no direction whatsoever. But they're trying to do anything they can to keep people on the platform with new features, to enable more shopping and advertising. I mean, I miss the days of Instagram being the place when you went and saw pictures of your friend's breakfast and vacations and, you know, trips. That was what Instagram was. And for many of us, that's what we, you know, how we got onto it. We Mm -hmm. didn't want shopping. We didn't want stories. We didn't care about reels and all the advertising. But they had to sell out to Facebook. Facebook had to continue to grow a community of influencers within Instagram so that advertisers would continue to give money. And that's really the the indictment here of social media under capitalism is that it's not about being social. It's about being uh, financial. Yeah, I guess we'll just I mean, I'm very interested to see if the metaverse is cool in five years. We will we will find out. I would love to get off social media, maybe maybe one day. That was Chris Garafa. Uh, Chris, tell us what you are getting up to on the Covert Action Bulletin. We just released an episode this morning. We interviewed the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy on the reality of Biden's recent uh, cannabis announcements. Uh, and we also share some of the speeches and voices from the October 8th protest in Washington, D.C., demanding that we that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. free Julian Assange. So check that out. Search your podcast player for Covert Action Bulletin. Thanks for joining us, Chris. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. John, before we go to break, I just wanted I have to pick which pop culture story I wanted to talk about. Did you see that Selma Blair uh, left Dancing with the Stars? No. You don't care. So, I mean, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars. I don't, right? I don't watch any of these. No. I, I don't judge I people. I can never figure out which ones are supposed to be the stars. I just don't watch a lot of TV. Um, but when I saw that she was going on, I thought that was really cool because you've seen you, you know yeah. that Selma Blair was diagnosed with MS in 2018. Yes. And, uh, you know, I have a close friend who has MS. And he was diagnosed, you know, later, uh, in, you know, as an adult. And, it, you know, what Selma Blair went through, I don't know. I, f- I felt a lot of sympathy for because it, it really does sound like she went to the doctor and she had these sort of vague symptoms that MS initially presents with, sort of tingling here, a weird feeling in your head, you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of times when you come in with sort of vague, vague symptoms, and I think perhaps especially if you're a woman, you get. They told this is off. anxiety. Yeah. This is in your head. Mm-hmm. You probably you're probably stressed. You're probably this or that. 
And, you know, I, I remember I'm, I'm pulling this from a story I read, you know, probably four years ago uh, when she got the diagnosis and looked back on the process of getting there. But what happened in her case is the disease was able to progress farther than it might have been able to had she been on drugs, um, I think, initially. And so then she had she had a, quite a few sort of physical disabilities, uh, some difficulty with speech and stuff. And so when she announced that she was going on Dancing with the Stars, I just thought that was really cool. And she went and performed for several weeks. And then I guess just this week had to bow out because her doctor said it was no longer, it wasn't any longer good for her. Like her body was taking a little bit more uh, wear and tear than they wanted her to. But I still think it was really, I don't know. I think it was great. I think it was a great, yeah. And she did a good job. It wasn't, it wasn't a sort of patronizing exercise, right? She was a good dancer. She didn't get voted off. She, you know, they did performances that looked like everybody else's performances. Like she did a good job. She and her partner, uh, again, I'm not a dancing with the stars expert, but I've watched some of her dancing and it's not a pat on the head situation. And so I don't know. I just thought that was a sort of heartwarming interlude, both of her like, uh, being able to get this disease under control. Anytime somebody emerges, a public figure emerges back into public life with some kind of public facing, um, like obvious disability. Mm-hmm. I think that that's important. And, uh, I don't know. I thought it was a nice, that is very nice. I'm sorry that she had to go off early, but I'm glad that she is doing it for her health. And I'm really glad that she was able to get out there and do it yeah. and say, you know, I mean, we're, it is not true that you can do anything anytime under any circumstances. Like you can be anything you want, uh, you know, some, I just things, read a story. some things are possible and some things aren't, but more That's things right. are possible, I think, than than you might imagine at your darkest moment. Yep. yep. Are you going to have to hold on yes, to your I'll heartwarming story to the other side of this break? We're political misfits. We talk about pop culture, but mostly hard news. We'll be back in just a sec. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are the ones who bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. There you go. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Uh, and once we get a hold of ourselves, we have a, a wide-ranging conversation ahead. Uh, I want to talk about what our government is saying about China. Uh, we are saying that we don't want uh, war with China, and what we are doing is uh, pretty steadily preparing for conflict with China and talking about how conflict with China is probably in our future. Uh, I also want to talk about the role China could play in what the UN does with regard to Haiti. I want to talk about online content moderation and why some platforms and some dangerous radical speech is just so darn hard to regulate while it is pretty easy for social media to, uh, you know, whack-a-mole anytime a Palestinian organization decides that they want to, you know, present some footage of, like, Israeli soldiers kicking in somebody's door. That seems pretty easy. Uh, but hard to get at this stuff that does something like radicalize the uh, the Buffalo shooter. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about whether the government silencing of the press might be starting to hit a little close to home for the mainstream. And uh, and maybe we'll get into <laughs> the latest helpful list of nuclear do's and don'ts. 
Joining us for this is Margaret Kimberly. She's editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and the author of the book Presidential Black America and the Presidents. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Oh, thanks so much. Good to be back. I want to talk about China and the media. Uh, Just this week, as the Chinese Communist Party holds the Congress that it does every five years, we had U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warning that China intends to pursue reunification with Taiwan on a much faster timeline. Uh, His full quote accuses Beijing of being the one to violate the status quo with regard to Taiwan. He said, Instead of sticking with the status quo that was established in a positive way, Beijing has made a fundamental decision that the status quo is no longer acceptable, and Beijing is determined to pursue reunification on a much faster timeline. They're about Taiwan. And, like, you can agree or disagree with the status quo on Taiwan, but it seems to me that it has definitely not been China who is upending this particular ox cart in recent years. And so I wonder what you think. How do you think people should take uh, these statements by Blinken? Well, it seems to me that uh, they're not content to have Ukraine blow up in their faces. They now want to start something with China. They, Taiwan is going to be the new Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, that's very bad news for Taiwan. This is especially um, crazy because the U.S. allegedly Um, goes by the one China policy that Taiwan is in fact a part of China. So uh, even if the People's Republic of China sent troops into Taiwan, Taiwan is China. So this is something that people need to know. And it's the U.S., that has uh, instigated this crisis with Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress going to uh, to Taiwan. Uh, it's this is very very dangerous. For the second time in a year, the U.S. is needlessly creating a crisis with another nuclear power. And it's all based on, I call it fantasy foreign policy, that you're going to undo China's economic prowess. No, you're not. That you're going to use Ukraine to weaken Russia and break it up. No, that's not happening. Uh, But we have a very, very dangerous administration um, uh, making up falsehoods and then acting on them. So this is uh, the Biden administration is the worst in foreign policy that I can recall. And I'm in, in my 60s. I've never seen this uh, much worse than Trump. I, I recall being uh, what were we told? He was harm reduction. Even if you weren't crazy about Biden, you had to vote for him right. because he was harm harm reduction as opposed to Trump. In this regard, he is much, much worse. It really does feel that way. And the losers in this situation will absolutely be the people of Taiwan, right, who have been, you know, self-governing, but who also have a very close uh, commercial and cultural relationships with China and who, you know, uh, have different points of view as to whether they want to be formally reunited with the mainland or not. But I think you would uh, I would suspect that nearly 100 percent of them absolutely do not want to be in a conflict in their lifetimes on this question. And the other thing that, you know, you mentioned Ukraine, and it seems like to some degree, Ukraine is almost being used as a cover to do things that we want to do, get powers that we want to get with regard to China. Because uh, just this week also, there was a report that bipartisan legislature has been introduced in the U.S. Senate that would give the Pentagon wartime procurement powers, 
that would allow allow it to buy massive amounts of high-priority munitions using multi-year contracts to help Ukraine fight Russia and to fill U.S. stockpiles. That headline and this uh, lead in this article in Defense News mention Ukraine. But a few paragraphs in, it becomes very clear that this is also about China. Uh, a, a congressional aide who spoke on condition of anonymity said the intent of the legislation is to spur the Pentagon and industry to move more aggressively by removing bureaucratic barriers with an eye not only on Russia, but the potential for a confrontation with China over Taiwan. Whether you want to call it wartime contracting or emergency contracting, we can't play around anymore. We can't pussyfoot around with minimum sustaining buy rates, uh, rate buys of these munitions. It's hard to think of something as high on everybody's list as buying a ton of munitions for the next few years for our operational plans against China. And to continue to supply Ukraine. I feel like operational plans against China is maybe burying the lead in this story. Um, but, you know, you have you have the U.S. president declaring at every chance he gets that the U.S. doesn't want China uh, conflict with China. The U.S. president is also the one who seems to be pretty happy to sort of ad lib Taiwan policy. Uh, but we're also very explicitly and pretty publicly preparing for conflict with China. And I wonder, you know, how you think the American people should use this knowledge to process the statements that come from our government about Beijing. Well, it's unfortunate that uh, there's so much and it's war propaganda. Um, uh, how often do you see anything positive about China in the news? It's relentlessly negative. Uh, things made up out of whole cloth. China's committing genocide against the Uyghurs. No, it isn't. Um, uh, uh, China is um, has to be beaten back. The U.S. is going to make computer chips and uh, dethrone uh, Asian countries' um, uh, superiority in this regard. No, it isn't, <laughs> uh, which also means attacking countries like South Korea, which is a leading chip manufacturer. I mean, all of this, this recent uh, ruling that U.S. citizens can't work for uh, China chip manufacturers, I mean, it's lunacy. But, but what this does is it it's like um, it's like a, a background music, you know. After a while, you don't really hear it. You sort of do, but you don't really. So it's relentless. China is evil. China is dangerous. Um, and then when there is some news about the U.S. trying to uh, subvert China in some way, you don't really pay attention because by that time you think, well, China's bad and there's got to be something we can do or they're spending even more. That is always a red flag that they want to spend our money, public money on uh, defense, it's already, is it $800 billion yeah. uh, for for um, the uh, military industrial complex? Less money for us, more money to start a war. This is absolutely crazy, but it seems to be bipartisan. Uh, and so we don't have any spokespeople for peace in Congress. Uh, the so-called progressives are go right along. They say absolutely nothing. They don't even dare to ask a question. So this is a very, very dangerous moment. And this administration 
is the absolute worst in this regard. It feels, it does feel like it, right? It feels dangerous. And I don't know if it's a product of being just immersed in this kind of news all day, but it really does feel different. The other thing that I think people should take notice of is this attempt to give the Pentagon wartime powers when we aren't at war. I mean, the U.S. is obviously engaged in conflict around the world, has been for decades, conflicts that we have never uh, declared as wars, right? We're, we're not at war in Syria. We're not at war in any of the countries in Africa that we drone strike periodically. Um, and I, I want to ask what you think that does to how Americans perceive their country and the rest of the world and how it is that we've gotten this, you know, this Congress that never wants to actually, as John mentioned earlier, never wants to, like, uh, grow a spine and and call a war a war, wants to just shift powers over to the DOD quietly so they don't really have to talk about it. You know, what, what's the effect of, like, for decades being at war without declaring that we're at war? Well, first of all, it diminishes Congress. They have abdicated their responsibility, but they also don't want the responsibility. They don't want to go up against any administration, whether Democratic or Republican. They don't want to go up against the military-industrial complex. And actually, I think if they were asked to vote, they would probably vote yes. So uh, yeah. the um, uh, there was a vote to send troops to Afghanistan and Iraq. They weren't called wars, but there were votes, and they overwhelmingly said yes. Mm -hmm. So I think they would still say yes. But uh, this is something they, they want it swept under the rug. They want, um, they don't want to engage the public. They don't want to take the chance that uh, 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 people might actually speak up and state their opposition. So they are perfectly fine with president after president sending, I don't remember, uh, but sometimes there isn't even a vote. U.S. troops in Syria, I don't recall anybody making that announcement. Uh, the drone strikes that happen in, in Somalia all the time, nobody ever says anything uh, about it. So there is a de facto state of war almost against the whole world, I feel like. But nobody wants to say that. It Everybody gets to, uh, it's a little uh, CYA for uh, members of Congress, for administrations, and for the media to not do their job, uh, the corporate media, and not report on any of these things. But it just, I feel like it allows the American government to present ourselves as, as perpetually the victim, right? We're, we're constantly under attack. We're constantly preparing for something that we really don't want to be involved in, and we just sort of pretend that we are not actively engaged all over the place. Um, sort of connecting these themes, right, of both uh, U.S. conversation about China and also this idea of being at war while not being at war. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the uh, decision by the Black Alliance for Peace to appeal directly to Russia and China, uh, Russia and China specifically, to veto a U.N. Security Council resolution that the U.S. is drafting to authorize a non-U.N. International Security Assistance Mission in Haiti. Why, why did you reach out to those nations specifically? Well, of the five permanent members of the Security Council, they're the only ones who could possibly vote no. Uh, the U.S., uh, U.K., and France are all in collusion together on, on these U.N. Security Council votes. That leaves Russia and China which have in the past abdicated their responsibility. Uh, to their eternal discredit, they abstained when uh, the UN was voting on a no-fly zone rev re 
resolution regarding Libya back in 2011, which allowed the U.S. and NATO to destroy that country and create an ongoing humanitarian crisis. And abstention is as good as a yes vote. One of them should have uh, voted no, which could have impeded the process somewhat. So Haiti, just to be clear to your viewers, the people of Haiti do not want a U.N. occupation. These U.N. occupations have been disastrous. The U.N. literally bought, brought cholera to, uh, to Haiti. Uh, the people are living under an, an illegitimate government. That is their problem. There is, we had a great article in Black Agenda Report last week by a great journalist, Jafri Gaiti, about the uh, families, the oligarch families, most of whom are, are not black. They're of uh, European descent, Middle Eastern descent. Descent, and they are not only the richest people in Haiti; they're some of the richest people in the Caribbean, um, and uh, they are the ones who control the country. So, when you hear about gangs, well, how do you think gangs get weapons into the country? These people keep the country destabilized. They do not want uh, another uh, President Aristide, who the people wanted and who the United States kidnapped. Haiti needs to be left alone. They do not need um, uh, any more occupations, any more invasions. It's the last thing people there and in the Haitian diaspora want. So Black Alliance for Peace was reflecting uh, what um, uh, the Haitian people have been asking for. No more invasions, no more occupations, and a direct appeal to China and Russia to finally vote no against these uh, uh, resolutions. But it's very important for your listeners to understand this uh, manufacturing of consent for Haiti is very racist. There's this subtext that these black people can't really um, uh, carry on their their own affairs. Um, and the you know the most shameful thing, supposedly leftist governments being a part of these policies. The current prime minister of Haiti was chosen by the the so-called core group: the U.S., the EU, France, Canada, the UN. Uh, people have not even chosen this man. He has no legitimacy whatsoever. And a lot of the times the media will show people in the streets protesting and conflate that with gang activity. They are protesting IMF austerity, which has um, increased the, the price of food and fuel. So that's what people need to know. And I think it's important for people to know they that uh, they have the right to appeal to any government around the world, and that is why there was a uh, direct um, request to China and Russia to use their Security Council, Council veto power and to veto any um, new occupations. But the UN apparently is going to try to get around this by sending troops from uh, black countries like the Bahamas. And it's mm -hmm. unfortunate that countries in the Caribbean have uh, continued to go along with this. It's really quite, uh, quite shameful. And, you know, as uh, producer Ben pointed out, it, it, a little bit ironic also that France uh, is sitting as a member of Security Council, you know, uh, perhaps going to vote to support an intervention in Haiti for Haitian police to be able to quell protests when France itself is in the middle of, you know, if you want to see footage of uh, French riot police tear gassing protesters and beating them with batons uh, over the last couple of days, it's out there. And I don't want to, uh, 
you know, I, I don't want to assert that living conditions in France are the same as living conditions in Haiti at this moment. But, you know, uh, some countries' protests are perfectly fine and acceptable and other countries' protests, you know, must be put down by international forces. Uh, the yeah, other- yeah, the the goal is to control Haiti. That's the issue there. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm curious also, uh, I mean, I think, well, I'm, I'm curious why the U.N., if the U.N. wants to send troops, why it's looking for a non-U.N. force to intervene. Well, as I, you know, they, they, because there has been so much pushback, they don't have legitimacy anymore. Yeah. So now they are, you know, going to African countries, Caribbean countries, getting them involved. Um, and these countries are pressured very often by the U.S. I think it's important for people to know the U.S. Imp- uh, applies a lot of pressure uh, and and threatens um, countries in a variety of uh, of ways. It could be, I mean, this has been uh, documented. In fact, uh, they will go to representatives at the U.N. Let's say their kids are at an American university. They'll say, you know, your kid doesn't have to keep his student visa. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They do uh, to personal threats, we'll withhold aid, we'll do this or that against you. So uh, that is how they, they <clears throat> excuse me, they bribe UN votes, or in this case, they bribe countries to go along with what the U.S. wants. And the U.S. wants to keep uh, Haiti as this subject puppet states and, and state and work in league with this oligarch uh, class. And in order to do that, they have to quell um, these uh, protests and quell this mass movement to try to finally have sovereignty and true independence for that country. Margaret, MSN and Rolling Stone and ABC News Today have a story out saying that one of ABC's most high-flying news producers has gone completely off the grid just a day after his laptop was seized by the FBI. Apparently, this producer, whose name is James Gordon Meek, he's an Emmy Award winner. Apparently, he had classified documents on this laptop. Meek is known as something of a military fanboy, but he has repeatedly gotten scoops for ABC News that were right on the money. It's, in, it's unclear why he was targeted. And get this, although he's in New York, the warrant against him was sworn out in the Eastern District of Virginia, the so-called espionage court. There's a bigger issue here, too, it seems. I'd like your thoughts. Here's a journalist with classified documents that a source apparently gave him, and now the feds are after him. This is exactly what Julian Assange was accused of doing, and many of us warned that if the mainstream media didn't stand up for Julian Assange, the Justice Department would come for them next. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing here? What are your thoughts? Oh, sure we are. We're, that's just what we're seeing. And as, as you well know personally, the Eastern District of Virginia is the hanging court. It's a court sure where is. no one is, is ever acquitted. It's the court that they use to go after people, to criminalize journalists, uh, just as they've uh, done with Assange and others. And it was the Obama administration which began um, prosecuting journalists who um, had classified mostly information that was given to them uh, in order to prevent any leaks and in order to prevent any whistleblowing. So Biden is following his boss, Barack Obama, here. But you're absolutely right. Uh, when the, uh, the corporate media, when they... Um, 
uh, gave in to the wishes of the state in Obama and Biden um, and Trump and now Biden administrations regarding Assange. They left themselves uh, uh, open to this kind of uh, attack. And if this guy is smart, I understand why he's gone off the grid. I actually hope he's managed to get out of the country. I, I frankly, hope so, too. Because that was my first thought. I, um, it's um, it's a, a terrible thing for him to say, but we don't have press freedom. We don't have press freedom if you can be prosecuted criminally for doing the job of journalists. And this used to be something that the media would brag about. The New York Times and Washington Post would compete with each other to see who could get a scoop uh, on information that the, uh, the government did not want us to have. But they've done a 180-degree turn. They work with the state, and this is the end result. Uh, a journalist who is uh, on the run because if they get their hands on him, he is going to go down. Uh, on that topic, I think, of um, uh, information and state management or lack of management of information, I, I wanted to talk about this report released yesterday uh, they didn't get a lot of attention. It was a report released by the state of New York, by the governor and uh, New York attorney general, on the role that online platforms played in the racist shooting at a Buffalo supermarket earlier this year, where 10 people were killed and three more wounded. The report concluded that fringe online platforms like 4chan radicalized the shooter. Live streaming platforms like Twitch were weaponized to publicize and encourage copycat attacks. And a lack of oversight, transparency, and accountability of these platforms allowed hateful and extremist views to proliferate online, leading to radicalization and violence. Um, I also just happened to notice today that the Eye on Palestine account uh, had been deleted by Meta, which uh, has been accused by Human Rights Watch of systemically removing and suppressing content posted by Palestinians. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, our... Our uh, media systems, social media in particular, seem pretty quick off the block when it comes to making sure you don't see, uh, you know, footage of Israeli soldiers kicking in Palestinian doors. Uh, I could also take the easy route and say that you don't see uh, stories that reflect poorly on members of the president's family. I mean, that's a little bit in the past, but it's, it, it was definitely it definitely happened. Uh Politically inconvenient stories, they seem pretty well able to uh, to wipe from our uh, from our Internet. And yet somehow uh, it seems to be very hard to regulate things like uh, anti-black hatred uh, and other kinds of, of hate speech, child pornography. And I wanted to ask, you know, is it, is it really that hard to get Nazis off 4chan or is there a lack of motivation here? Well, clearly there's a, a lack of motivation. And as far as Meta, I mean Facebook, they've been doing this for years now. Uh, Facebook does, as uh, their partnership with the Atlantic Council, i.e. NATO, um, they have been removing a, a Palestinian um, content, um, a Palestinian organizations removing their their pages because the state tells them to do that. It's very simple. And no, they don't want us to see uh, how uh, Israel forces people to demolish their own homes so that their property can be stolen by settlers. They don't want us to see that. Um, 
But uh, as far as this shooter who uh, had killings, live-streamed the killings, this is something that, um, you know, no matter how you feel about uh, state censorship, I think is something everybody can agree should not have been uh, allowed to happen. But um, I, I have sort of mixed, having said that, I have mixed feelings about it. I think people are radicalized. They radicalized themselves. If you go looking for, um, you know, Nazi-inspired uh, um, material on the dark web, then that's where you are to begin with. And we had uh, um, uh, racist murders before we had the internet, so I, I sort of don't want to say that's, uh, that's responsible. Uh, and also, I, I'm, I'm always concerned that it's really the left that's the target. Um, and uh, it's, of course, nobody wants this, you know, um, uh, people to be uh, murdered in a, in a supermarket like this. But uh, um, absolutely, that um, uh, the major um, social media platforms do what the state tells them to do. And we, and while they are in the first thing, what's the first thing anybody says? Well, they're private companies, right. but if they're doing what the government tells them to do, then that is a violation of the First Amendment. And I, I hope that's a legal road that uh, that someone chooses to go on to find out, to prove and document that they're doing what the state tells them to do. And therefore, they are violating the First Amendment. Margaret Kimberly, always such a pleasure to talk to you. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find more at uh, Black Agenda Report? Uh, today is Wednesday. How fortuitous. BlackAgendaReport.com. We have a new issue uh, every Wednesday, and you can see me on Twitter. My handle is Freedom Ride Blog. Thanks so much for joining us, Margaret. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back and get into some interesting court cases Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. Uh, We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. We're going to get uh, to our next guest in a, in a minute. Um, we have great news, though. <laughs> not, not really. Uh, but, but it is possible. It is becoming more and more possible that Dan Snyder yeah. could be removed as the owner of the Washington oh, it's, Commanders. It's and been ever such a long since time. I saw that, the owner of the Colts has so far publicly um, called out Snyder just yesterday and said there probably is support within the NFL, which is, after all, uh, just a sort of conglomerate. Right of a, yep. a, I don't know what you call that, but an an association of people who own different. They own all the NFL teams. I guess it's a franchise. Yeah, yeah it's a franchise, a franchise system. Yeah, yeah exactly. Franchise system. Anyway, there might right. be support within that franchise system for um for getting rid of Snyder. They might Snyder, be able to get the number of votes that would yeah. be required to do it. The and owner force that you're talking about the uh, the Indianapolis Colts owner Robert Irsay. He's one of these legendary owners, like Robert Kraft or the Mooney family in Pittsburgh. Legendary, a bunch of caveats well, there. Uh, <laughs> in that they've been around for many right. many decades. Right. 
And Dan Snyder is still seen as this young punk troublemaker, you know, the 30-year-old billionaire who Stop started making him sound off cool. Right. He's not a young punk troublemaker. I mean, he is all of those awful things, but But I a, mean 25 years ago yeah, yeah. when he bought the team. Uh and and now he's just a thorn in their sides. Well, they, he's embarrassing. He's also been cheating them. Yes. He's been cheating. I mean, he is accused of uh, and there seems to be evidence to support that he has been cheating the NFL, mm-hmm. that he has been cheating uh, season ticket holders, which is absolutely the sl- I mean, uh, cry me, a, cry me a river over cheating the other billionaire owners of NFL teams, but cheating season ticket holders, like trying to forget that they get them to forget that they paid for things. So you don't have to. It's it just right. So sleazy. Yeah, he's sleazy, not to yes. mention what appeared to be uh, just absolutely pervasive uh, sexual harassment in the in the franchise, right? At, yes. ev- at every level of employment. So he's being investigated for that. The, yesterday, the office of the D.C. attorney, uh, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, said he was almost done with his investigation of the Washington commanders and Snyder and is planning to take further action in the case. That may be yeah. uh, subpoenaing Snyder. I don't know what else. Uh, but I would be absolutely delighted if he was forced out as an owner. And I have been sort of making comic comparisons uh, for the past 18 hours. Like, who would be worse? Who would be a worse owner? Who would I be really bummed if actually it was, you know, what, what would be the out of the frying pan into the fire situation? And I came up with a lot of joke situations like Henry Kissinger. That would be kind of yeah. a bummer. MBS. Although, honestly, I take sell the team to MBS, right? Better than Snyder. And then, of course, producer Ben gave the the real world the actually possible scenario that would be worse, and that is Kanye. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> he Nightmare owns everything scenario. else in town. It goes from Dan Snyder to Jeff Bezos. Just awful. Yeah, he owns um, everything else in town. Now, I will say we have no reason to think that that is actually going to happen. No. Uh, it is just that it would be uh, it would be bad, and so you have to assume it's possible. I'd like to see him get the boot. Yeah. I wanted to say too on the way home yesterday I got a push notification that that a jury that a jury had um had uh come to a, a a guilty verdict in the case of uh Paul Flores who was charged with murdering Kristen Smart back in San Luis Obispo back in 1996 this was a this was a case that just gripped the country if you remember it if you were in the in the states in 1996 uh she was a Caltech student, absolutely brilliant. She went to this party and met Paul Flores, who was also a student. Um, he offered to walk her home, and nobody ever saw her again. Uh, the The conventional wisdom was that he either raped her or attempted to rape her. When she resisted, he killed her, and he buried her under her father's under his father's deck, back deck. Her body apparently was there for several years, and then he and his father dug her up and moved her, and they've never found the body. Oh, no. The father was acquitted yesterday. He's now 81 years old. He was acquitted of being an accessory after the fact, and, um, and uh, the son, Paul, was convicted of second-degree murder. He now faces 25 to life. So after all these years, she was killed in 1996. After all these years, now there's at least a, a modicum of 
justice, perhaps. Yeah, or some kind of, I hate to say the word closure. I don't know why I offered it. We'll go with justice. Uh, you know, John, we have we didn't mention this at the start of the show, but uh, right about now, Joe Biden might be speaking on uh, his efforts to control oil and energy prices in the United States. He was scheduled to give an address uh, discussing the possibility of releasing more from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, none of this is going to have much of an immediate effect. Yeah. You know, uh, he was supposed to start speaking at one fifteen. We know he's always late. Always, um, always late. Yeah. But um, I, I guess what he is going to announce is that he's going to release 15 ba- million barrels of oil from the Strategic Reserve today. But as I understand it, this is actually all from a much larger amount that he said he was going to release over the, you know, over a period of time some time ago. So this is not yet more, as I understand it. He had said earlier in the year yeah. that we might release up to 180 uh, million barrels, correct. something like that. Yeah, right. So So this is just a small fraction of that. We might get more this winter, but I don't know how much of us, uh, if any of that is going to push us over uh, that 180 million. Yeah, it was authorized in in March. Um, Let's see. What else is he going to do? Oh, he also says that we're going to restock the reserve when prices are at or lower than uh, $72 a barrel. Maybe we'll wait till it gets down to 67. I mean, again, it's another big announcement like. It feels like this big announcement he was supposed to make or made about uh, efforts to protect reproductive rights. That was just basically a whole lot of hoopla. Here's the thing you could have already guessed we were going to do uh, that's not actually going to make much of a difference. And uh, (laughs) over to you. Uh, It was really he's just sort of in that first address. He uh, tossed it back to the voters saying, well, here's what I can do. My hands are tied unless you vote in a Democratic Congress again. Um, Now I imagine he's going to say, here's what I'm going to do. Our hands are tied until uh, we get regime change in Russia. Right now. I don't know if he'll make it that explicit, but that'll pretty much be it. Yeah, this is this is just bad all around. You know, and I'm not blaming everything, everything on the United States. No, and it's uh, not it, everything it's, on Biden either. And no, and it's it's not all on Biden. This is the culmination of many years of bad foreign policy mm-hmm. and bad planning. Yeah, that's very what it bad comes planning. down to. And now, what do you know? Also, there's a story here about uh, old workhorse Bernie Sanders. Yeah, coming he's going to go to eight different states. Uh, Nineteen events before the wow. midterm elections. He does. He does come out and do he's his best. Trying. It seems like he really does. Well, we uh, we now have our next guest. And uh, I'd like to uh, go into the intro first. Igor Danchenko, who we've talked about a lot on the show. This this is the Russian national who was an FBI informant and was implicated in the Russiagate scandal, was acquitted yesterday on all four counts of lying to the FBI. He joins former Hillary Clinton attorney Michael Sussman, who was also acquitted of lying to the FBI earlier this year. This brings to an end the star-crossed efforts of special counsel John Durham who had been tasked with investigating the Russiagate lie. After four years and millions and millions of dollars of the taxpayers' money, Durham has nothing to show for it. What does this mean for the Justice Department, and what does it mean for those people who perpetuated the myth of Russiagate? In other news, Lafarge, a French cement manufacturer, pleaded guilty to paying millions of dollars to ISIS and to another unnamed terrorist group, I can only imagine, in Syria, 
so that it could continue manufacturing cement there. Is there another, un, un, oh, they wouldn't name the other terrorist group? Yeah, I don't know why. I thought it was weird too. The company was prosecuted in the United States and agreed yesterday to plead guilty to conspiracy to provide material support to a terrorist organization and pay a fine of $778 million. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has initiated a roundup of former felons who voted in the last election. Dozens of people have been charged with felony voter fraud, even though a 2018 state constitutional amendment gave them the right to vote. We are now joined by Bruce Fine. Bruce is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and is one of our country's leading constitutional scholars. Good to have you, Bruce. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, John. Bruce, let's start with this trial of Igor Denchenko. To the surprise of literally no one, he was acquitted yesterday in federal court here in Washington. First, what do you think this decision means for the Justice Department? On the face of things, it looks like they just blew it in this Russiagate investigation. (laughs) Well, I don't know whether the Justice Department uh, would have brought the case uh, as opposed to Mr. Durham, who was specially appointed at the insistence of President Trump. Uh, You may recall that Mr. Durham himself in his closing argument was criticizing the FBI. Well, you're sloppy. You didn't do this or that. You know, ended up almost attacking the department. Uh, The FBI is part of the Justice Department. I work there, so I know they respond to the attorney general. Um, So I think really the big loser is Mr. Durham and Mr. Trump. Uh, For this reason, you remember that the Mueller investigation, which was two years Uh, thoroughly attempted to identify any conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia uh, regarding uh, the Russian attempts, as all countries do, to influence the outcome of an election to their advantage. As you well know, worked at the CIA, that's hardly unusual. The very first task of the CIA, its covert action, was to try to influence the Italian election so the Christian Democrats could win and the communists would not. So there's nothing unusual about this, uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, that effort by a foreign government should be encouraged or agreed to or aided by Americans. Anyway, Mr. Mueller investigated. Uh, he concluded that there was not any criminal violation, criminal conspiracy. Okay? Now, so why are we investigating this claim of, well, was it a witch hunt? Uh, so Mr. Trump concocted this idea, well, Actually, there was never any foundation at any time for believing there was any connection between his campaign and Russia, even though there are lots of meetings. Uh, And therefore, they had contrived from the outset uh, to make up Mm -hmm. phony allegations just to harass Mr. Trump. That was the gist of what Durham was chasing down. He spent three and a half years, that is, almost twice as long as Mr. Mueller, right? And what does he come up with? No, nothing with regard to, you know, attempting to attack or, you know, to get at Mr. Trump. And he came up with two small, tiny lies that allegedly were told to the FBI. They weren't even big ones that had anything to do with Mr. Trump. But, well, did you properly represent uh, who was asked you to come here, or whether you would talk to Charlie Dolan or something? These are really tidbit ideas. I do not believe that uh, Mr. Durham would have brought the case, except he had it was like his last desperate effort. He couldn't go away after Mr. Sussman was acquitted and say, I came up with nothing. I mean, at least he had to show there was at least a tiny speck of sand 
that he was able to get uh, by bringing this second sequel case uh, on, a, on an issue of a, a pur- purported misrepresentation, which, had, which was trivial. You know, to the whole investigation, trivial, um, and it, it 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 is an example, I believe, of the in some sense the abuse of the investigative power. But ironically, what this showed was it was Mr. Durham and Mr. Trump who were abusing their investigative powers to go after small fry who had nothing to do with anything close to a criminal violation, Mr. Sussman, Mr. Donchenko, rather than the other way around. They were the ones up all these ideas of a big conspiracy that was nothing but the imagination of Mr. Trump. Um, and uh, so I, I would hope, however, that this puts to rest this idea that the Justice Department was out to get him, you know? Right. Three and a half years, years, staggering amounts of money. And, and that's where you come up with nothing. But also, I think, is very telling about the, uh, the acquittal is it came in less than 24 hours. This was not a hard case. This wasn't a case where you even had one juror's holdout. You remember under our system, it has to be unanimity, unanimity beyond a reasonable doubt. No, you couldn't reach there. There wasn't even one holdout, you know, to cause the trial to go on for another couple of days. I mean, this is really, really fast for a criminal case that has some complexity to it in terms of the law. Bruce, why hasn't Christopher Steele ever been prosecuted? He more than anybody profited from from the Russiagate uh, lie? Well, he got money for it, but there's nothing, but there's nothing, at least at present, um, that suggests that, that Christopher Steele uh, was a person who took things <coughs> and, and, and sent it to the FBI and represented it was true. Uh, if you're just in the private sphere, I mean, the people who should sue him as the ones who hired him and came up with and he comes up with this fraudulent document. Basically, they paid for something that was fraudulent. But Christopher Steele did not go to the FBI and said, hey, you need to investigate him. Oh, that's true. He came up with a report, but that wasn't he wasn't acting as a as, as an FBI agent. No way. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sort of I'm curious, Bruce. You know, I, I think that. Durham investigation was an effort to, you know, figure out or try, try to understand uh, and maybe uh, find a way to assign some blame for the Russiagate hysteria that really gripped the United States and, uh, conti- you know, paralyzed our politics, uh, you know, made people even more distrustful of the media, uh, had a lot of you know, pretty disastrous effects on our society for five years. And I, you know, they're coming up short very obviously in in these investigations. I wonder if you, is there some kind of avenue for redress for this saga? You know what I mean? Or is it something where everyone's, you, you can't find fault for anybody's part in it and there is no one to actually blame, but, but yet we all suffer as a result. You know, I wonder, uh, what would is there any kind of fruitful way to get some sort of um, I don't know what the word is justice or uh, some you know some kind of accountability for how this narrative that our president was a Russian agent uh, came to be so uh, pervasive? Well, a part of the problem, um, and most complex uh, issues have more than one, you know, um, is that. Uh, we don't tell, we don't fully inform our public, our lawmakers for that, that, hey, this is par for the course. So we get his, 
hysterical about this. I say, go back to 1948. The United States has been interfering in the same way in elections for at least 70 years. And that's not just the United States. Every foreign country does that. It's part of foreign policy. You try to influence things abroad that think you're going to help your country. So what else is new? So what, what is this hysteria about? Like, oh, my gosh, this is a monster. Nobody ever does that. You'll find that in these discussions, there's never, ever any question by the media or the Congress to the NSA, to our CIA, are you doing this abroad? No, that's off limits. Why? So it makes, it makes our, the, the, the public frightened at this, like somehow this is a huge anomaly. But it isn't. It's been happening from day one all the time. The fact is that as long as the, 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 the public should know that's going to happen, and they need to make their own evaluation. My own view is that the ability to influ- of a foreign government to influence, no matter how much money they throw at, you know, what, a, what the, the local people vote for is really, really tiny. I think that intelligence communities make up this idea that they can throw the, the, the victory one way or another, you know, and because they want to stay in business. But the voters are the voters. They're, they're voting on what they see, their paycheck, what the unemployment rate is, you know, what the inflation rate is, how can they get a mortgage, you know, are the, you know what's the, uh, how, how does the crime or something like that. And those things are real. The, the, what a foreign country says is virtually irrelevant to that. And that's why the United States, you know, we go all these other places as well. We're equally futile in trying to influence what the outcome is abroad. I remember at one time we said, well, let's have elections in the West Bank. Hamas wins the win, <laughs> wins the election. And we're trying to put the money. We say, OK, now we don't we're, we don't going to honor the election. OK, so part of this, I think it's an immaturity that comes because we don't tell a full story. It was never worried about. It. I'm not worried about this. It's just a fact of life. You're going to have foreign governments. And it's not just Russia. China tries to do the same thing. We try to do the same thing in their countries as well. Bruce, tell us about this situation with the French cement manufacturer, Lafarge. They paid $778 million uh, in, in fines now, or they will pay it, to the Justice Department after having paid millions to ISIS so that they could continue manufacturing cement in Syria. How did they come to be prosecuted in the United States? Because some of the money that was used to pay them got funneled through U.S. banks. You know, it's very uh, anything internationally. And so if you have a nexus to the payment mechanism that comes through the U.S., uh, and most everything does yeah. on its banks or whatever, that was the jurisdictional hook that gave us uh, uh, authority to you know, provide our material assistance law. That was it. I see. And can you explain to us what's going on in Florida? Voters there passed a constitutional amendment allowing ex-felons, except people convicted of murder or sex crimes, to vote again once they have completed probation. There were amendments to the constitutional amendment, and then there were counter-amendments, and now Ron DeSantis is rounding up ex-felons who have voted and is charging them with felony voter fraud. How do you think this plays out? It seems like... Like it's going to jam up the courts and will cause something of a of a constitutional crisis in the state. Yeah. Well, let me explain um, the the curlicue, if you will, in in the, the legal uh, uh, question. Um, the the courts or DeSantis interpreted the amendment to mean that in order to have served your you know your, your sentence, uh, you had to pay court costs as well, not just, 
you got a pardon, so your conviction no longer stands. And the system in Florida is uh, very suboptimal. They don't keep clear records. It's hard to find out whether you owe court costs, you know, how many days you stayed in prison, you're supposed to pay them a per diem or something like that. And the the vast majority of, of these cases, if not all of them, are situations where someone didn't know that they still, they, they couldn't even find out. There wasn't any central uh, processing way in which uh, a former uh, a felon could discover, well, do I owe additional money? Uh, and then if there is that obligation, uh, there would be a question in my mind, okay, if you can't pay it off because you're completely indigent, there's an equal protection constitutional issue of saying you can't vote only because you don't have enough money to pay your court costs. That's smacks of a of a poll tax. Uh, so that's what that's what's going on here, and, and that's you know, DeSantis wants to make out this the idea that there's this huge onslaught of illegal voting. So he's got to concoct some cases. Uh, my own view is that these that these cases are going to shipwreck uh, because they will not be able to prove that there was any mens rea criminal intent. I say it's very difficult to navigate a way to find out. Okay, well, what is the money that I additionally owed for having you know, spayed, you know, have a per diem rate of blank while I was in prison, or pay the court costs of the criminal trial, things of that sort. So that's what's going on. DeSantis is very, very cynical. You'll see this is part of the larger game that he's playing when he actually used money in Florida that was set aside to transport immigrants. From Florida, you know, mm-hmm. who are here, you know, illegally. Well, he used the money to transport immigrants who are in Texas. Right. It's pretty hard to mistake Texas from Florida. <laughs> uh, and also there's problems of whether they were actually given accurate information uh, and weren't coerced. Now, there's nothing. You, you have a right to travel in the U.S., whether you're an illegal immigrant or not. Uh, and um, the fact is that uh, is that that. Um, it appears as though uh, the immigrants were not told that uh, what the conditions would be. Mm-hmm. This vineyard or up in New York, they were deceived uh, or allured into agreeing to do something they might not all otherwise have done. I'm not saying all of them, uh, but this was not uh, playing uh, by the, you know Queensberry rules and making sure everybody's making informed decisions. Because DeSantis thinks that you know immigration is something that'll catapult him into the presidency. Right. Um, at some point. So it's unfortunate. It's very cynical. And one of the things, to my mind, that sticks out is that virtually all of the uh, the immigrants, when they land, what do they say? I want a job. These are not people who are trying to jump onto welfare. I want a job. I want to work. Right. Same attitude that our forefathers had hundreds of years ago when they were fleeing uh, Europe, yes. Asia, and now Africa for the United States. Why would you take somebody who wants to be a hard worker, comply <laughs> with the law, uh, you know, uh, and work under the Constitution? So well, we want to kick you out. Really, we we need yes. those people. That doesn't make any sense. And uh, and and that's again what's uh, when you have these restrictive immigration laws, it's a suicide pact. Um, the vast, uh, I think, a majority of the billionaires on Silicon Valley are immigrants. Bruce Fine, thanks for joining us. Bruce is the former Associate Deputy Director, I'm sorry, Associate Deputy Attorney General of the United States and one of our country's leading constitutional scholars. Uh, I think we don't really have time for another break, do we? And no. There are a couple of developments, and I'm, I'm glad that our 
Producer Ben has put this in our little chat, uh, our internal chat. This happened just before we came on the air, and there's just so much going on today that I forgot to raise it. But Liz Truss, the UK prime minister, has fired her home secretary, Suella Braverman. Um, That's all I knew when we were coming in. Now it appears that Liz Truss fired Suella Braverman for what was being described as a national security breach. A dramatic move that heaps even more pressure on Britain's premier as she clings to power. A national security breach. Do you know what it was? No. She uh, used a personal email in a way that uh, violated the rules. She she said, so she wrote, uh, Suella Braverman wrote a resignation letter. Uh-huh. She said she sent an official document from my personal email to a trusted parliamentary colleague as part of policy engagement. This constitutes a technical infringement of the rules. Oh, come on. That's what she, well, that's what she is saying she did in the resignation letter. I don't know that Liz Truss is going to say that there right. was something else. Because, again, that makes you look even worse. Yeah, that makes you look <laughs> even worse. That. You know, what? Um, But can I say also, sure. she used the opportunity in this letter. At least this is how it's being characterized at, uh, at CNN. And I think this is fair enough. Uh, she wrote... The business of government relies on people accepting responsibility for their mistakes, pretending we haven't made mistakes, carrying on as if everyone can't see that we have made them, and hoping things will magically come right (laughs) is not serious politics. Oh, no. Which is being described as a thinly veiled critique of Liz Liz Truss herself. She also explicitly says, I have concerns about the direction of this government. We've broken our promises to voters. Uh, I have serious concerns about the government's commitment to honoring manifesto commitments. I mean, whatever. I'm not worried about uh, conservatives not fulfilling their conservative promises. But if Liz Truss actor again, who is advising Liz Truss? Seriously. What you should do is come into office. And then start firing your closest advisors. Yeah, two of your four you look, top advisors. It makes you look incompetent. Yes. And especially if this is over, I mean, you know, if this is over an email thing. Wow. It's, it, again, see, it will certainly seem like a pretext for something else because I don't Definitely. know why you would bring the spot unless Liz Truss just cannot bear to be out of the spotlight for a second. And she's a sort of any any publicity is good publicity type and is <laughs> type and is more like Donald Trump than we thought. But to call that a national security breach seems to me to be a real reach. There I, has to be something more to it. You know, when I was on Capitol depends, Hill, I guess it depends on what the document well, is. You know I what suppose. I mean? If, if it was a, like, a national security document, okay. Here's our, here's our plans for Ukraine. Right. Maybe a problem That's versus different. like, here's my response to your edits on our. When, know, I, when I was on Capitol Hill, um, that's when the Hillary Clinton um, uh, server thing yeah. came out. Yeah. And I remember sort of chuckling about it and saying to my boss, what do you think the American people would say if they knew that literally every one of the hundred senators had a private email server. Literally none of the hundred senators have a have an at ussenate.gov email address. I was working for John Kerry at, at the time. He still uses an AOL uh, uh, email address. They're all like that. Yeah. Anyway, there are problems everywhere. Liz I think Trust I'd is- rather be John Kiriakou today than Liz Truss because I, I come down solidly on the side of the head of cabbage. Yeah. Uh, on this. Yeah. I think the head of cabbage is going to last a lot longer than Liz Truss she's, is. Honestly, she's got to be enjoying it at some level because uh, why? Otherwise, wouldn't you just wait maybe? Wait a couple months? Just wow. Put a give, don't You'd give her think? any work. I don't know. I don't know. Shh. 
Also, uh, <laughs> looks like Circle K is going to start selling weed. Yeah. How do you like that? I love it. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> it's great. That's fine. Fine by me. Wherever. <laughs> Just that cracked me Circle up. Circle K. But in uh, Florida. In Florida. But, yeah. but by God, don't try to vote if you've ever been convicted of a God, felony. That is such an awful you story. You can smoke weed, though. Yeah. That's terrible. Terrible. Oh, well. Guess we got to leave it there. Yeah. I want to say thanks to everyone who joined us today and thanks for uh, making the show possible. Thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you out there for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>